Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 88. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And if you hear some munchins and crunchins in the background, <laughs> uh, it, it's not your audio player. It's not our recording equipment. That would be Walt. Uh, he has not been cooperating with us today. In fact, we've been sitting here for 40 minutes trying to start this episode, and this was the only way that we could get him to calm down was to give him his bone. He's a super well-behaved dog, and he's been amazing throughout quarantine. But for whatever reason, today, he's just not having us recording. So we did the equivalent of handing a three-year-old an iPad. Yeah, so if you hear some background noise, uh, there is nothing wrong with your equipment. And uh, please uh, just kind of work through this one with us, because it's as distracting for us as it is for you, which is especially frustrating for you. <laughs> I've been waiting for so long, since we launched this podcast, this is one of the titles I've been looking forward to. So, of course, it's this episode. Of course. And, of course, we are talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I'm just, I'm just going to kind of let you go a little bit and talk <laughs> about your relationship with Pirates of the Caribbean. Relationship. It's an obsession. I'm just going to come out and say it. Pirates has always been my favorite ride at Disney. It's one of the things that I remember most vividly from my first trip there. I was hooked on it immediately. So naturally, I was ecstatic when they announced that they were doing a live action film based on the ride. And then they go and they cast my favorite actor in it. So I was I was in love with this movie before I even saw it. Isn't that sort of everybody's feeling, though? When you think about your first trip to Disney, and it's almost regardless of when you went, so long as it was when the ride was open and operating, um, the two rides that I feel like people think about the most often, about you know, in regards to Walt Disney World specifically, um, or no, in, in, in Disneyland as well, if you ask people, what do you remember from your first trip, I feel like they say Small World and Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, some people might say Dumbo, some people might say Haunted Mansion, but more times than not, Pirates of the Caribbean is in the conversation. I thought you were actually going to say Haunted Mansion and Pirates, but I think probably because on average, when you're going to Disney for the first time, you're what, maybe between the ages and four or four and eight, if you're lucky, yeah. and that's old enough where you're still maybe going to be scared by these things. You're, you're very impressionable, and... The adventure and the kind of scariness, I think that's what does it for you. Yeah, it's it's that that unknown, sort of that fear of the unknown. And because it is pirates, I mean, they uh, everybody was joking. I think Johnny Depp had even said when he got cast in this role, he talked about having gone on the ride at Disneyland as a kid. And he said, when you're a kid, of course you want to be a pirate. It just seems like it's a lot of fun. And I think that people also associate like Peter Pan, right? And and Captain Hook and Smee. Pirates for so long were such a big deal in cinema specifically, especially in that golden age of Hollywood. And it disappeared for a very long time because I think that it was sort of played out. It definitely wasn't chic anymore. And I think that's why there was such a buzz when this movie was getting made. 
Right. And I think that's also a Walt Disney thing. I think that's why he was so attracted to pirates because it did go hand in hand with adventure. Their, Disney's first live action film was Treasure Island. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of a really full circle thing that they were bringing this ride to life and it was the last ride that he got to work on. He never got to even see its completion. I remember when, it, and, and it's, you remember strange things from your life and, and for no rhyme or reason do you remember these things. But I remember being a kid and watching football on a Sunday at my friend's house with my dad. And he was talking, and a movie trailer came on, and I don't remember what the movie was. It was something ridiculous. And this was in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, but I'd almost be sure it was the late 90s. And this trailer came on for, um, oh, you know what the movie, I'll have to look it up later. And it was a movie with Patrick Stewart. And I remember at the end of the... Almost positive it was Patrick Stewart. And at the end of the movie, he got, like, ejected into, like, a sewage treatment plant. But it was, like, one of these weird, zany, like, action movies from the 90s. Sure. I have no idea where you're going with this. I have to look it up before the end of the show. But we're watching that trailer. And my dad says, look at this bleep that they're putting in movies now. He said, I miss the movies from when I was a kid. And my dad was born in the early 50s. So he saw movies like Treasure Island and um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But what he said specifically that stood out to me for reasons I can't quite understand was, why can't they make a good old-fashioned swashbuckling pirate movie? Wow. He said, so specific and a couple of years later, or within, say, two or three years, this movie got announced, and, and he could not get us to the movies fast enough. That Hummer, always so intuitive. Yes, just the weirdest thing that he said that. But we've spent enough time talking about things that I'm sure you could be less interested in talking about, because what you really want to discuss is 2003's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I'm going to give you the very bare bones plot because I would find it very hard to believe that you're listening to this podcast and you've not seen this film. But for those that haven't, here we go. While sailing to Port Royal, the crew aboard the HMS Dauntless, including Governor Weatherby Swan and his young daughter Elizabeth, encounter a shipwreck from which they rescue a boy named William Turner. Around Will's neck is a pirate medallion, which Elizabeth takes for his protection, knowing her father and the crew would think he is dangerous. Elizabeth keeps the medallion hidden for years, but after a dream about the day she met Will, puts it on and wears it to Lieutenant James Norrington's Commodore promotion. After the ceremony, Commodore Norrington pulls Elizabeth aside to the top of the fort and proposes, which, compounded with her tight corset, causes her to faint and fall into the ocean. When the medallion is reunited with the sea, it emits a pulse, calling out to the pirate crew aboard the Black Pearl. Former captain of the Black Pearl, Jack Sparrow, who has just arrived in Port Royal to commandeer a ship, dives in to rescue Elizabeth and notices the medallion once he has brought her to safety. Jack asks Elizabeth where she got the medallion, but is cut off when Commodore Norrington outs him as a pirate and Governor Swan orders his hanging. Norrington puts Jack in handcuffs, but he uses Elizabeth as a means to escape and is chased through Port Royal. 
Jack ducks into the blacksmith shop to hide and while attempting to remove his handcuffs is detained by Will, who now works there making swords as well as practicing with them. They duel long enough for Norrington to catch up and capture Jack. That night, the Black Pearl sails into Port Royal and the crew raids the town in search of the medallion. Two of the pirates, Pintel and Rigetti, go to the governor's mansion where they find the medallion on Elizabeth, who invokes the right of parley. Under this protection, they must take Elizabeth to meet with Captain Barbosa, whom she tells that her last name is Turner to conceal her identity. While negotiating the safety of Port Royal, Elizabeth learns that Will's medallion is one of 882 pieces of Aztec gold Barbosa and his crew stole from Cortez's treasure on Isla de Morta. As a result, the pirates are now cursed and caught in a limbo until all of Cortez's gold pieces are returned and the blood debt is repaid. More specifically, the blood of bootstrap Bill Turner, who sent a piece of Aztec gold off to his son William. Believing Elizabeth to be Bootstrap Bill's daughter, they set off to Isla de Morta. Commodore Norrington is not moving as fast as Will would like on Elizabeth's rescue, so he turns to Jack and strikes a deal to free him, if he will lead him to the Black Pearl to save Elizabeth. Jack has his own interest in finding the Pearl, so that he can have his revenge on Barbosa for staging a mutiny and take back his ship. Jack and Will cleverly commandeer Norrington's fastest ship, the Interceptor, and head to Tortuga to enlist a crew. Captain Jack's crew leaves Tortuga and reaches Isla de Morta just as Barbosa is about to lift the curse. He cuts Elizabeth's hand and restores the last piece of gold to Cortez's chest, but the curse does not lift. Barbosa is furious and slaps Elizabeth for lying, then blames Pintel and Rigetti for bringing the wrong child. Realizing that Jack is only serving his own interests, Will knocks him unconscious, leaving him to be captured by Barbosa and returns Elizabeth to safety on the interceptor. Elizabeth then returns Will's medallion to him and explains why she was taken, but that it isn't really her that the pirates want. The Black Pearl catches up to the Interceptor, takes the crew hostage, and destroys the ship. Coming to grips with his past and who his father really is, Will negotiates Elizabeth and the crew's safety, but doesn't choose his words carefully enough. Barbosa locks Jack's crew safely in the brig and maroons Elizabeth and Jack safely on an island, which Jack has previously escaped from. Knowing her father and Norrington are out looking for her, Elizabeth creates a giant smoke signal to attract the Dauntless for her rescue, resulting in another arrest for Jack. Elizabeth then convinces Norrington to go back after the Black Pearl to save Will by accepting his marriage proposal. Jack leads the Dauntless to Isla de Morta and conspires with Norrington to lure Barbosa's crew into an ambush, again serving his own interests to get the Pearl back. The plan goes awry when the pirates, still cursed, sneak attack the Dauntless. While the Dauntless crew is distracted, Elizabeth sneaks away back to the Pearl to free Jack's crew. Even after Elizabeth saves them, the crew refuses to help her save Jack and Will, and they sail away on the Pearl. Captain Jack seizes his opportune moment and a piece of gold, frees Will, and Elizabeth arrives in time to find them dueling with Barbosa and his crew. Barbosa stabs Jack and reveals that he too is now cursed, and the two continue to sword fight, though neither can die. Elizabeth and Will take care of the remainder of Barbosa's crew and arrive at Cortez's chest. Captain Jack cuts his hand and throws his piece of gold to Will, who drops both coins into the chest as Jack shoots Barbosa, revealing the curse has been lifted. Barbosa's crew aboard the Dauntless surrenders to the Royal Navy. Even though Will assisted Jack in his escape and stole a ship, Governor Swan grants him clemency for saving Elizabeth, but this is not the case for Jack, who is sent to the gallows. Will confesses his love to Elizabeth and, despite the consequences, goes to save Jack from hanging and help him escape to the Pearl, which has come back to Port Royal for him. Jack and Will cannot outrun the Royal Navy this time and are surrounded. Will takes a stand and declares his loyalty to Jack and Elizabeth declares her love for Will. Realizing he can't compete, Norrington gives Will his blessing and the governor pardons him for his actions. 
They even give Jack one day's head start as he escapes back to the Black Pearl where the crew renames him the captain. Yo-ho! Let me ask you a question. Do you feel old? Because for whatever reason, it was not until we sat down last night, and I guess it's when... And I've had this film on Blu-ray. I've had it on DVD. I know you've had it. I bought it the day it came out on DVD. I'm sure you were the same. For whatever reason, it wasn't until last night that I realized this movie, at the time of this recording, is 17 years old. 17 years seems like a long time, and in that regard, it makes me feel old, but the movie doesn't feel that old. Because, spoiler alert, it is my favorite. I mean, it is my favorite Disney non-animated film. I was completely obsessed with it when it came out, and... You know, we were talking about when I first learned that they were doing the Pirates movie. It was also a very formative time for me because I had just started taking TV production in high school. And I was starting to put the pieces together that watching TV and movies was more than just a hobby. And that I might actually be able to pursue that as a means to make a living. And then this movie comes out and it just like fueled the fire. And it it was just... That does kind of make me feel old because thinking back to that time in my life, I mean, this movie, 17 years, and this is another reason why we picked it this week because I have a birthday this week and uh, I was just like, all right, let's do Pirates. Let's let's make that my birthday show. Um, this movie has now been around for half my life. So yes, now I do really feel old. So thank you for that. This was not what I wanted to accomplish <laughs> by celebrating this, this movie this week. So- Part of um, what has kept you coming back for more time after time after time and part of, I'm sure, what fueled your obsession is, in fact, the story here that I really, I really want to delve into this. Um, I, I, in fact, I'm going to let you delve into it because I don't even know where to start other than the beginning. Actually... What I do want to start with is kudos to whoever chose not to do this as a musical. That's not like a rumor where it was going to be, you know, like how we've talked about Beauty and the Beast was going to start off not as a musical until Howard Ashman stepped in. Yeah. But I was thinking about the ride. He is feisty today. He is climbing up on the back of my chair all right we're gonna we're gonna move him and then you're gonna swing the chair around come here come here okay you good i'm i'm fine i'm going to leave that in actually (laughs) because at this rate why not (laughs) Um, we didn't even have rum for this discussion we wanted to and then thought better of it we thought ah maybe we should be responsible well we got two more in the first trilogy so we'll make up for it um but yeah as we were watching this and, you know, we were researching the history of the ride and all that. And obviously the film opens with Elizabeth as a child singing the song that we're all familiar with. I was thinking about it. And between all of those things and the flamboyance at times of Johnny Depp's performance, I was like, man, they really could have gone left with this if they had chose to do it as a musical. And, It obviously would have never worked, but being that 
these classic Hollywood pirate movies were coming out at a time when musicals were very popular, you know, I could see I could see the big Tortuga tap dancing number at the bar and, you know, kind of like your Gaston's Tavern. And I'm glad that we steered away from that. Yeah, I feel like that would have been too satirical if they would have done it that way. Right. And there was already enough controversy when they announced it of you're doing a movie off of a ride. They were retrofitting it, really. And this was, I think, the first time Disney had done that. All of the other rides were based off of films. Right. Or they were IPs that they had just not made into films yet, like The Haunted Mansion, for example. By the way, the uh, the movie I was talking about with Patrick Stewart was Masterminds. Okay. 1997. So six years before the release of this, my father wanted a pirate movie, and he had to wait that long to get one. All I right. told you I was going to figure it out by the, end of the, by the end of the episode. But let's start delving in. I'm going to let you bat lead off here because similar to when we reviewed Frozen with our friend Christina Kay, I'm sort of just here to operate the board. <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, I appreciate the choice for for not going the musical route, but it does have that strong start with yeah. the song. It gives us a little bit of familiarity. Um, and then it's so jarring because that's juxtaposed with this little like, what is this little girl doing up here? So for me, you're immediately hooked and you realize that whatever you think you know about the ride, this is going to be entirely unpredictable and I love that they started at the beginning instead of telling the story of Elizabeth and Will meeting in flashback right I remember thinking at the beginning of the movie because the colors are so dark and washed out at the beginning it could be a Burton it could be but that it happens a lot when the black pearl comes around where they they do wash the colors out so stylistically it's consistent throughout the film, but I remember sitting there watching it, and I was, how old was I? I was 17. Mm, like 17, 18, yeah. I was 17 when the movie came out, and I remember that's sort of that awkward stage at when you're a 17-year-old boy where you're not really going to Disney movies anymore. And like I said, my father dragged me and my brother to go see this, Um and I remember thinking, wow, this is a Disney movie. I've never seen Disney look this way before. And I was hooked. It's such a strong open. Um, I also like, and this is how stripped down that plot was for as long as it was. I didn't even mention Gibbs in it. That, right. And that's not to say that Gibbs is not an important character, especially because he's one of the first people we meet. And I love his intro here because you can kind of tell that he's the on man out and he's saying that it's bad luck to have a woman aboard and he's completely buying into all the pirate lore that everyone else is trying to steer Elizabeth away from. Yeah. Uh, and he's drinking. So yeah. <laughs> by the next time we meet him, this is kind of an easy setup. Yeah. Um, I also like that... From the jump, I mean, yes, she's singing the song that uh, we know from the ride, but it's not a straight ripoff of the ride. I mean, without getting into it too much, I, I do want to put this out there now. This is influenced by the ride basically in name alone. 
other than sharing a name and a couple of tributes throughout the movie, this has nothing in common with the ride at all. And and I think that that was part of my hesitation going in was I'm going to watch a movie where they brought a ride to life. And it's it it is in a very stripped down theory but at the same time it has nothing to do with the attraction. Well, because what you're used to when you know a movie associated with the ride is they condense the film into scene by scene by scene, especially like those dark rides, like what Snow White was before the uh, mine train or like Winnie the Pooh. They're literally taking you scene by scene with what you know from the movie. So this, when you know the scenes, you think the movie is going to play out exactly as the pirates raid the town. Yeah, and I'm thinking it's going to be silly and whimsical and... It, it is not any of those things at all. I mean, there's plenty of silly and whimsy, well, but... comedy, but... What they did here, and I think what makes this movie so successful, is that the silly and whimsy comes out in the dialogue and in the characters and in the set pieces as opposed to the story. True. Um, to circle back on what you said, though, about the, the ride not being you know, like a carbon copy mm-hmm. in the film. Um, what I love that they did here is that they give us a lot of visuals that we're familiar with. Like I was just talking about Gibbs. The next time we meet him, he is the guy in the pigs. Yeah. Um, you know, and they sprinkle it in. But by the first act, by the t- the end of the first act, by the time the crew is leaving Tortuga to go chase down Barbosa's crew at Isla de Morta, all of the scenes that we are familiar with in the ride, except for the pirate being stabbed in the back, are done. Right. So by we're like leaving on the ship with them because everything that we know is gone. It's behind us. And that just sort of feeds that feeling of adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on and talk about what I think is debatably one of the best. I'm not going to say the best. One of the best character entrances in the history of cinema. This is not Not just just Disney. Disney. I'm talking cinema in total. That's exactly what I have written in my notes. I want to know what you think is better. This this is not debatable. Oh, off the top of my head. I mean, geez. Um, I mean, you're going to put me on the spot here. I no 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 no. You said it yourself. You're here to operate the buttons. If you want to play, you got to come prepared. I like Heath Ledger's entrance in The Dark Knight. I think that that's an incredibly strong entrance, probably stronger than this one, Ooh. especially when he takes that mask off and he says "weirder" uh, or, or "stranger." That's what it is. Um, that I think is better than this. Um, A Batman movie. What a surprise. What else? Not not much else. I'm saying to me, it's it's probably it's top five. No, in all seriousness, I I did want to know what you're comparing this with because for me, this is it. And that that was very well played, by the way. I wasn't thinking of that, but to me, I I think this is the best an- entrance, hands down. There, there's so much at work here. Uh, the set is beautiful, obviously. You know, yeah. you've got the sun going down, and he's on top of the mass, it's an iconic shot. And then this is where 
your silliness of the ride comes into play because you realize he's not at the top of this big ship. He's on this rinky-dink boat that also happens to be sinking. And all the while, he's just got this look in his eyes like his wheels are turning. And I will talk for an hour on his performance if you let me. So I'm actually going to hold back myself a little bit here. But this is the beginning of what I think is the most nuanced performance debatably in all of cinema that one's debatable but I mean I said it before they cast my favorite actor in this movie and I forgot I was watching Johnny I thought this was a person and again this plays to the adventure of it all I was like I want to go where this guy goes yeah love the entrance sets like you said are great the outfits are great. His makeup is great. But it's it, it's the music because you start to hear that oh, iconic God. score for the first time. And it's the first time you're hearing something that has become timeless. It all plays together so perfectly. It's harmonious. And it gives you so much. Like you feel like you know him the minute he steps on that dock. And it's all of those elements working together. Yeah. Like the the pirate garb is somewhat familiar but at the same time you've never seen anything like this before because he brings that rock star element to it and you're also used to the eye patch and peg leg and a parrot yeah it's this is like such a modern even though it is set in a period and it is for all intents and purposes a period piece it's so contemporary and like you said with that music building too it's it's not just that first shot of the ship sinking it's then he gets down and they go past the the hanging uh, yeah, skeletons yes. and he tips his hat but the, that little trumpet part comes in it's all working together perfectly um you know and then he gets into port royal and to me this is what also demonstrates great writing too because they start to develop the character when very little happens when he doesn't want to give up his name um and then he's talking to the navy guards uh murta and i always forget the other one's name um but just that little conversation that back and forth like oh why aren't you up at this fancy thing going on at the at the port and he gets all the information that he needs yeah and and he sort of gives them a backhanded compliment like you're not good enough to be up there but you are good enough to stay here and guard a boat that I was able to get onto because I caused you two to bicker with each other and I just snuck right by. Exactly. Murtog and Mulroy. Um, their outfits are great. I think that the outfits throughout this movie are great and, and I'm not going to repeat that again. The same thing goes with the sets. Um, when we get to... Um, Norrington's uh, promotion to Commodore and um, (laughs) he proposes to uh, Elizabeth she would never survive that fall we're gonna let that pass because the rest of the movie is just so damn good but she would never ever survive that fall you can make the case for she was passed out so she was good and loose and not tensed up when she hit the water (laughs) but forget the rocks that they mention her hitting the water would have been the equivalent of her hitting a concrete or a cement sidewalk. I mean, this is not just the top of the fort. It's also, you know, at the end of Hanging a cliff. cliff. Yeah. It's a crazy fall. I mean, they do try and cover their tracks with the throwaway line of the rocks alone should have yeah. killed her. Yeah. Um, 
I'm wondering, though, if it maybe has to do, and that's why, because I always thought the pulse was maybe the medallion reuniting with the sea. But now that you're saying this, I'm wondering if it protects her because she was wearing it and the medallion is now calling back to the pirates. But I'm wondering if that's why it didn't kill her. I don't know. I think it was more to just call the pirates back to Port Royal. That's that's my guess. And of course, without that, you have no movie. Um, but I love when when Jack Sparrow jumps in to save her um, and he brings her back up and he cuts the corset off and they go, we wouldn't have thought to do that. And it, it's that that great comedy. Clearly, you've never been to Singapore. Um, and I think my favorite line here as Norrington gets to him and he sees that he's got the P um, branded on his arm. He mm-hmm. knows he's a pirate. He sees the sparrow tattoo and he says, you must be the worst pirate I've ever heard of. And he looks at me, he goes, but you have heard of me. And it's, it just sets Norrington off because it's such a shot at his ego. That's one of my favorite lines in this movie. And I remember as a kid, well, not as a kid, but being 17, when the movie came out, the minute he said that line specifically, I was all in on Jack Sparrow. The writing is just incredible because like you said, without, even having spent that much time together and without even really having an argument, he just shoots Norrington back down right after he's gotten this big promotion. Yeah. And I agree with you. That's where it really seals the deal with Jack because aside from the fact that he just had this really tongue-in-cheek comment, you get the impression that, like, this guy has lived. Like, I want to know his story now. And what's amazing is that other than the mutiny with Barbosa taking the pearl, you really don't get a lot about him. You you still it's it's amazing that you have such a fully developed character, but so much of his past is still ambiguous. Yeah. And he has a great character moment literally in the same scene when he takes Elizabeth and he puts the pistol to her head mm-hmm. because you see that at the end of the day, as heroic and as selfless as he was rescuing her, he's still a pirate. And he will remind you, I'm a pirate. This is just what I do and who I am. And I think it's a great, another great moment where they fully develop him as a character. Pirate and a good man, because he assures her that he's not going to hurt her when he says that you saved my, I saved your life and now we're square. Yeah. So you kind of, even though he is doing something horrible, you start to trust him a little bit. The transition into the next scene is where I was really hooked. I mean, I I was on the character alone, but if you thought the sinking boat was silly, now he's swinging around the docks, he's in handcuffs, he's running through the town. Like This is where it starts to feel familiar with what you know from the ride. Even though this is not a specific ride scene it kind it feels like it belongs i feel like this is less silly and whimsical and more like an adventure scene though i guess that's where to me where you think it has the silliness i think it's an action film it's an adventure film 
you're right, but I don't know. To me, because of the way that he's teetering around, and you know, it's also more character development because he's just kind of winging it. Yeah. Um, I think that's where the silliness comes a little bit too, because his, you know, his hands are tethered. Um, and you know, obviously, more of the whimsy comes in the next scene at the blacksmith shop where you know they're sword fighting and they're on the teeter totter and they're going up to the rafters. This whole scene is just amazing. Um, I love the relationship that develops almost immediately between Jack and Will because I think Jack realizes very early on that he's he can best Will in a fight, but he knows that Will is a respectable opponent. And even though we later learn what the one gunshot really means. It's the same thing with Elizabeth. You know he's not actually going to do him any harm. And I feel like at certain points during this sword fight, it's almost a game to them. Yeah, and he plants the um, the seed that his father was a pirate very early on because he looks at him, he says, you seem familiar. And then it's followed with, have I threatened you in the past? So it, it kind of ends on a laugh. But they plant it early that Will is familiar to Jack. And then they have what is by far the best sword fight scene in this entire series. Like, eventually yeah. we are going to talk about all of the films and we're going to do this, this at least this first trilogy over the course of the next couple of weeks. But I don't think that I'm spoiling anything when I say... This is the number one sword fight scene in the series. It's better than the one he has with Barbosa, and it's better than anyone that comes in any of the sequels. The one on the wheel between the two of them and Norrington is cool, and they tried to give us this a run for its money, but it, it just doesn't work. do it. It didn't just work. doesn't do it. Because there's so much character work at play here, too, and I, I feel like that's... A lot of it. And the music, again, great in this scene. Um, but yeah, I like that Will, you you know, it's a great character moment for him too because you meet him and he's really straight-laced and like he's all about capturing the pirate. But I think he kind of lets his guard down a little bit and they're having some fun because at the end he seems really surprised and he's like, you cheated. Right. And Jack is just like, pirate. Um. Great character development for him here because you see Will earlier when he goes to present the sword he made for Norrington to Governor Swan. And you see that there is clearly an attraction and some awkwardness between him and Elizabeth, who he refuses to call Elizabeth. He'll only call her Miss Swan. Um, but what I like that they do here is that they flesh out the character when... He when Jack says, who makes all of these? Because there's swords everywhere. He goes, I do. And I practice with them three hours a day. Um, and Jack says, maybe you have to practice. Oh, he says, you have to get yourself a girl. Or maybe that's why you practice with them three hours a day. Because you have no other way to impress her. Which is exactly right. Oh, I thought it was a dig at, at you got too much time on your hands. I think that's... So I think that's how it's supposed to come off. But if you really think about it, because Jack and you really do see this get fleshed out over the course of the next few films. He's such a good reader of people, though, mm. that I don't think he was so much looking to insult him so much as it is that he's giving him a look in the mirror, which when you look back on the introduction to Will as an adult, 
when he has that moment, that awkward moment with Elizabeth at the governor's house, Jack's absolutely right. But what makes this even better is that Will says to him, I practice with them three hours a day so that if I ever meet a pirate, I can kill it. Not kill them, not kill him, not kill her, kill it. Yeah. What a devastating but perfect insult. Because he does not even want to dignify a pirate as a human being. No, and it really sets up how his character is going to completely crumble. Yeah. Not to mention it also sets up that he is that straight-laced and he does believe in justice and he doesn't, he's not going to be intimidated by pirates. So when you find out that his father was one, it, it really does, as, as you just pointed out, it aids in making it so devastating for him. No, it's just, again, amazing writing. That one word tells us so much right. and sets up so much. Um, so speaking of pirates, yep. the next scene would be the attack on Port Royal. Yes. This, to me, is exactly what you'd want to see from the ride. The dog with the key. That's iconic. And most of the uh, nods to the rider here, but I do give it credit for the most part, very, very subtle nods where if you are not a Disney fanatic, you're not going to know what they are. If you love the parks, if you love the attraction, they stand out to you like a sore thumb, but they are not totally in your face. Right. I mean, this is really how the ride starts off as soon as you get down the waterfall, they're firing the cannons on, on the town. But I mean, what, what else could serve this story better? Right. They're here for the medallion. So of course they're going to raid the town. Yeah. And originally they had a lot more nods to the ride. Uh, the guy being dunked in the well and coming up spitting water. They ended up cutting almost all of that out. That's a decision that I think was made for the best. Because if you see those deleted scenes, then to me, it it feels less that I'm watching a swashbuckling, action-packed pirate movie that's based on an IP, and more like I'm watching a commercial for Walt Disney World. Like, I half expect 1407WDisney to come up <laughs> at the bottom of the screen. Exactly. Yeah, if they would have left that in, they had it in the Tortuga scene. I think you could have maybe worked it in here a little bit, like if the pirates were torturing someone. But you would have needed a character that you care about being dunked to really make it work. And it, it just wouldn't have. I can't think of anybody's story really where that would have fit. Maybe Gibbs. But I like him better with the pigs. And it would have just been dragging on the joke that he needs a bath. Yeah. Absolute carnage when the Pearl comes to Port Royal. It's great. Again, it is so different from what you have seen in any Disney film prior to that. I mean, for the most part, at least. Certainly in live action. And I love how they plant having to outrun the moonlight and get out of there before the moonlight arrives. Because they could have very easily forgotten to point that out and you could have sat there after the fact going well wait a minute they were attacking tortuga at night and they didn't turn to skeletons but they it's not until you've seen the movie a second time a third time that you you realize that as the clouds start to pull away from the moon mm -hmm. they start to retreat 
And when the clouds come back, they're back out. They're really well done. Great attention to detail here. Right. Because, I mean, that's the thing. They're only there for the medallion. And it also kind of serves to explain why they're creating so much havoc. I mean, yes, to an extent, this is what pirates do. This is what you expect. But there was a rhyme and reason for them tearing Port Royal to the ground because they had to be in and out of there quick. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's part of it, too, is that it adds a whole different element by having to explain to these townspeople why, you know, there's skeletons attacking. Yeah. And I think I think it was just, you know, you planted it early enough on in the movie, but I think it was too early to see that because tying back to the ride, you are supposed to be sort of scared of these pirates, even though some of them are goofy and like, you know, they kind of ease into it too with the introduction of Pintel and Rigetti because they're so comical and you get your comic relief from them. So as the audience, we're still trying to figure out are they dangerous or are they funny? And if you know by this point that they are in fact zombie pirates who are cursed, you're going to be scared of them. It takes a lot of the fun out of it. Yeah. I would watch an entire film just of Pintel and Rigetti. Totally. I think they're that good. In fact, if I'm being totally honest with you, and I am spoiling my review of some of these films, I would have rather seen them get a solo film than some of the sequels that we got. But that's just me. Um, Disney Plus. Hopefully. They kidnap Elizabeth because, well, not even kidnap. Technically, she, you know, she calls for parlay, so she has to be taken to the ship. And. You meet Barbosa, and I love the look of him. I love his attitude. I know we're going to really delve into characters shortly, but I think it goes without saying here that Jeffrey Rush is absolutely incredible, and he gives so much life to this character. And again, great introduction to him because you see how smart he is because she's talking you know she's the governor's daughter she's very sophisticated and you know he says we're just but humble pirates you know we don't understand these big words and then he said what was i failed to acquiesce to your request whatever it was i disinclined to acquiesce to your request whatever it was he said and it just goes to show how smart he is but how smarmy and how arrogant he is as well. This is also a good Elizabeth moment, too, because up until now, you know, we've seen her, you know, put on the pretty dress and go to the party and she's going to be betrothed. Um, So you're immediately falling into the Disney princess thing. Yeah. Of, you know... She's going to be married off, but she wants more. And you know that, and they've hinted at it. And you see that, you know, she is sort of a modern girl stuck in this ancient world because she doesn't want to marry the first offer that she got. And she's very conflicted over that. But here is where she really starts to separate herself, not just as far as being stuck in the Disney princess canon, but she's really starting to prove herself as a heroine because when she dangles the medallion over the side and threatens to drop it, you can see that she has got brains and she is so aware of what's going on. Aside from just knowing, 
you know, things that she's read about because they do allude to it. You know, she knew what Parley was because she's been reading about it. We know that she's been obsessed with pirates since she's been a little girl, not just because of the shipwreck, but she said as much that she thought it would be exciting. So she knows exactly what she's doing. Yeah, because if they would have if they would have teetered too much on the other side, then she would have just been a damsel in distress. And that's clearly not her as a character and it's not what they wanted to do with the character here and i don't know that you could have pulled this movie off without making her a strong character i agree because eventually you know and we'll get into it there is so much back and forth and she plays an integral part in all of it yeah moving on to getting out of port royal and our adventure getting underway uh one of the other scenes that grabbed me is where jack and will have to start working together you know at this point they've struck a deal Will has bust him out of prison. Um, the canoe. Yeah. It gets me every time. I love it. Again, this is where that silliness comes in. And I think it's brilliant that they're just kind of working with what they got. But, you know, and they, they have the line when Will says to him, this is either madness or brilliance. Right. And Jack says, funny how those things tend to coincide they it reminds me of buzz and woody when they sneak into pizza planet in the first toy story movie that's a great comparison i, I mean, never thought of it that the way exact same thing yeah it, because their legs are just sticking out but then you know it's it's such a great gimmick that they have that little airtight part where they can actually pull this off it's amazing yeah. and then they dupe the entire navy out of loading a ship up for them and then they take it and they're off. Yeah, that that shot in particular, that over the shoulder smile, uh, it's it's so iconic. And I remember like I remember it specifically from a McDonald's commercial because I I think McDonald's had a lot to do with the marketing of this movie. And I don't again weird things that you remember growing up. I remember that specifically from McDonald's to the point where when I see that shot. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean, when you see, because it's always used in those, you know, Hollywood highlight packages that you see mm. at the Oscars or whatever. I just want, like, chicken McNuggets and an order of French fries when I see it. I, that's, that's just the God's honest truth. To me, it speaks to his performance because Johnny is saying a lot with his eyes, but I'm sure he would appreciate the Nugget Association. Yes. So from there, they leave Port Royal to go off to Tortuga to crew up and we get the return of Gibbs, who I think, like I said before, this is so much more fitting for him than a Navy ship. And again, you get the impression, you know, we don't even know need to know what happened between the last time we saw him and now and how he got here. And, you know, it, I think it speaks to Tortuga that it just kind of gets to you. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony is that he was so afraid of pirates and then he became one. Yeah, you're right, because he was so superstitious that now he's got all of this pirate knowledge. And when Jack sits down with him, he doesn't really have to say too much about Will for Gibbs to know the whole history. So they assemble the crew, uh, one of which is Zoe Saldana, who later yeah. goes on to Guardians of the Galaxy. We've got our Gamora, I, where I Disney started liking her. I did not know that was her until yesterday. Are you serious? Yeah, I didn't know until yesterday that was her. So here's the funny thing. I'm not necessarily looking at this now of being like, oh, there's our future Guardians of the Galaxy star. 
when I first saw this, I recognized her as, oh, that's the girl from Center Stage, which was a little not so well-known rom-com. Actually, no, I shouldn't say it wasn't well-known because that Mandy Moore song came out of there. I Want to Be With You. Do you remember that song? That's not a surprise. But it was a big radio hit. And um, When I hear I Only Want to Be With You, I think about Hootie and the Blowfish. (laughs) No, this was I Want to Be With You. But the song was bigger than this movie. But she was in it. She played a ballerina. She was actually very good. I don't know if she's trained. I, I would assume so. Uh, but she was really good in that movie. And um, I was like, oh, my God, because she hadn't done anything since that. And I used to dance, so I was obsessed with it. But anyway, that's how I knew her. I I would have never expected then for her to, you know, be what she is now to the Disney universe. Well, right. Between Guardians and then um, Avatar, she was, uh, yes. she was an Avatar as well. I forgot about that. I hate Avatar. I want to circle back around to the scene where... Elizabeth is dining with Barbosa on the Black Pearl. And um how he you could tell you could tell that it's been a while since they had a female around them cuz he's very much interested in watching her devour that suckling pig. And they dress and her they up. They dress her up. They, the candlelight dinner, and he, it, it's, it's sort of a creepy moment, but it's made even more startling when she stabs him in the chest with that knife, and he pulls it out, and he goes, well, let me ask, after you killed me, what were you planning on doing next? And she stumbles out the door, and the moonlight is out, and they're all in their skeletal form. It's a great reveal for the curse. I mean, you see when Jack is in the cell, they reach in for him and you see the skeleton arm. But this is the first time that you've seen the full reveal. It's startling. It's great. Yeah, because the arm is just a little seed and you don't really, not not that you don't think too much of it, but it's certainly not as scary as seeing them with, with these tattered clothes and the skin hanging off of their face. And I love the design of them because they could have gone, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about James and the giant peach and how they just recycled Jack Skellington and they just dressed him up as a pirate for that. Yeah. Um, here they could have done the same thing. They just could have had skeletons. They, they could have even done it with face paint and dressed them in the clothes and it wouldn't have been nearly as scary. And usually I'm not, a big supporter of CGI, but they just did such a great job with it here because of the way the lighting hits, it's not so jarring to see them in this skeletal form and the zombies, you know, it, it doesn't come completely out of nowhere because of the, the overall design of how this ship looks. Yeah. Jumping back ahead to where we, where we should be picking up the story here, the fight between the black Pearl and the interceptor. One of the best battles, again, in the entire series. It's exciting. It's fun. It's got a little bit of funny to it, but not to the point where you're taken away from how serious a matter this is. Everything about this scene is spectacular. What I like about this scene, too, is that Barbosa has Jack locked in the brig of the Pearl. So, you know, the irony is that he's a prisoner on his own ship. 
and his crew on the interceptor is now becoming invested themselves. Like they don't necessarily know that they can save him. So they have their own battle to fight. And then from there we get to probably one of the most iconic scenes of the franchise is when Jack and Elizabeth are marooned on the island. Yes. Why is the rum gone? Yes. That is what makes it iconic. Forget the fact that we get a little bit more of a reveal about who Jack is and what he wants. And what a liar he was the whole time. Yes. That it was really just the rum runners found him and he got lucky that that's where they were. And he knew exactly where the rum was. But did he lie or did he just let people believe the stories? I mean, there was pirate lore and it was like folklore of how he got off of that island because even sea Elizabeth turtles. Knew, but even Elizabeth had heard the stories of how he escaped and he kind of just got lucky. And um I love that he just owns up to it. And he's like, "Here I am and the rum's where I left it and this is just what I'm going to do and just sit here and drink my face off until the next thing happens." It also plays up the idea that um, it's either one of Norrington's guys or Murdoch. I, I don't remember who. Uh, they asked, do you think he knows what he's doing or is he just making it up as he goes along? And up until this point, because it seems like he's improvising, but as soon as he learned that the curse was real, as soon as he saw that arm in the jail cell, his wheels started turning. He has known the entire time he is going to have it lifted, make sure Barbosa and these guys get eliminated once they're back in real human form and he can kill them. Right. And I, I'm wondering if he was even playing with the idea of becoming immortal because he is immortalized in all of these stories. And, you know, he's Captain Jack Sparrow, savvy? Why would he argue with any of these legendary stories that are being told about him? Why would he try to disprove anything? Yeah. He's not necessarily lying. He's not putting this information out there. He's just lying through omission True. because he's letting everyone believe it. But what I love about this is that he has been built up to be this person and not only does Elizabeth manage to rip that mask off by finding about the truth about how he got off the first time, but he has had an answer for everyone up to this point. And then when she sends out her smoke signal, he's reduced to, no, not good. Yeah. And that's all he can say to her. She is really the only one who can best him. Yeah. And I, I think the closest he came to actually firing that one shot was when she lit that rum on fire and he put the gun to the back of her head and she had no idea he was doing it. Great scene. Yeah. It was a great moment in this scene and the hangover must have been crippling. I I can't even imagine unless maybe that rum settled a bit over time. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about when they get back to the cave. Yes. And they're standing over Cortez's chest of gold. And Jack steals that coin. And Will watches him do it. I love everything about this scene. It shows, again, how smart Jack is. It shows how cunning he is. And it shows that, at the end of the day, he really is on their side. Because mm -hmm. up to this point, 
He's gone back and forth so many times, you don't really know whose side he's on. He's on Jack's side. Correct. He's self-serving. Right. But in this case, he is on their side. Their side is Jack's side. What I love about this scene, too, is the writing. Because it goes back to their first time in the cave where he tells Will not to do anything incredibly stupid and to wait for the opportune moment. And that dialogue comes back here. And I love that he's speaking to Will in code as opposed to wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I have a plan. Just trust me on this one. And he gets him to do it without having to reveal too much. Right. When he and Barbosa are sword fighting and Barbosa sticks him with that sword, obviously we, we as the audience know what's about to happen. But when he stumbles back into that moonlight and he goes, well, that's interesting. And he pulls the coin out and he says, I couldn't, well, I couldn't resist myself or I couldn't mm-hmm. help myself, whatever it is. And they get into the sword fight and they are just going in and out of that moonlight. That CGI holds up so incredibly well. Because I will tell you what this movie accomplishes very well is that there is a proper mix of both CGI and practical effects and very detailed sets. But this here specifically is absolutely outstanding because you talk about a movie that, again, at the time of this recording is nearly 20 years old. I can go back and look at movies 10 years ago. Forget 20 I go back 10 years ago and find movies where the CGI at the time looked great and it's it's horrific now. It's unwatchably bad. This is so good, though. So good. It's excellent. Even the zombie pirate walk under the boat yeah. uh, is amazing. And that is full CGI. That's, that's not practical. It's full-blown CGI. And we'll talk a little bit about how they achieved the zombie pirate look in a little while. Um, but yeah, those cuts with Barbosa and Jack's sword fight are absolutely amazing. And another line here in this scene um, that leads you to believe that Jack is kind of flying by the seat of his pants is when he says, uh, get whatever it was, get to the boats or to the boats or whatever, whatever the exact line is. And Barbosa says, take a walk. And Jack looks at him and he goes, so not to the boats? Because he didn't anticipate that they would go under the water and creep up that ship to attack Norrington and his men. Right. Well, at this point, he thinks the curse is going to be lifted and he's going to send them out for Norrington to ambush. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was his plan the whole time. Exactly. exactly. And and it kind of backfired in his face temporarily. Right. And I don't think, you know, I, I had talked about it before, was that I thought maybe he was even toying with the idea of becoming immortal. I don't think he planned to have to curse himself. I think he had to do it, and that was improvising once he realized that they were going out to attack the Dauntless. Um, The other interesting thing about it, and it took me a couple of times of watching this after I first saw it, because they were so specific harping on they need Turner's blood, Turner's blood the entire time to lift it, you know it's a separate piece of gold that Jack took, but I thought maybe they were alluding to them actually being brothers because he cuts his hand and returns the piece of gold to the chest. But you for I I had forgotten with the first couple of viewings that Will still has his and that right. also has to be returned too. Correct. But 
there was a while where I was surprised they didn't go there in the sequel. I mean, nowhere to go. Yeah. Wouldn't have made any sense. No, and their, I don't think their relationship would have been better for it because I appreciate it, especially now, you know, we're getting to the end of the film um, where Will decides that Jack is a good man, even though he is a pirate and he realizes that you can be both, which is also something that's important to him. And, you know, I like that their friendship becomes a brotherhood without it explicitly being that they are brothers. Yeah, that one last daring escape to end it all when Jack is ready to hang on the gallows. It was a perfect way to end that movie. What amazes me, too, is that's one of the first things that they shot, but the chemistry is there as it has been through the entire course of the film, but, like, real time it's there, and it was only, like, day 15 of shooting. Yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about characters a little bit here? Yes. Okay. I'm, I mean, I don't know what else you want me to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that we've talked about... I mean, I think we've talked about Jack enough, unless you think that there's more. I mean, I could talk about him ad nauseum. The only other thing that I would want to add is that, that that last scene where he is getting ready, you know, to hang, or thinks he is, and... um you know, they're going over his list of grievances and he's laughing at himself, hearing about his past adventures. It's hilarious to me. And it just, you know, what what needs to be said that we haven't is how much Johnny Depp contributed to this character because he wasn't fully fleshed out. Johnny Depp was brought on early enough where he bought so much to the wardrobe to the dialogue, to everything about Jack that basically he had such a strong idea in his head that the director, Gore Verbinski, was like, yeah, just just go with this. Yeah, I mean, he is that character. And that's why nobody will ever play that character again, or at least they shouldn't. Um, and I think, honestly, that character stays with him. Yeah. Because even after these movies, he started dressing the part, he kept wearing the eyeliner... Um, and it, it really, you know, for as anti-Hollywood and even sometimes anti-American as Johnny Depp is, he's an expatriate. He's gone to live in France and, you know, he sometimes doesn't have the highest opinion of this country. Right. Uh, he loves this movie and he loves this character. And I like that, you know, he's tried to shirk Hollywood so many times because he started off on 21 Jump Street and he was the teen idol. And then he was the leading man heartthrob and he never wanted any of those titles. He's just so good at what he does. It's like, you know, of course you're going to get the parts. Um, I feel like this is the first mainstream character that he played that he could embrace. And I'm, I'm happy that he was able to find that for himself. Will Turner, Orlando Bloom, great character, um, well cast, but upon first viewing of the movie, how did you feel about Will Turner? Because I'd say for the first half of the first viewing of this film, back at the Comac Multiplex in 2003, I could not buy into this character. By the end of the movie, I was all about it. 
And certainly now I watch it, and I think because I've bought into him, it's with a different set of eyes. But first viewing, I didn't like how he was in denial of everything. I mean, I understand that's the character, but I just couldn't buy into it. I, he, it kind of came off a little whiny. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think what sort of jarred me about him was he was just so black and white about pirate or not pirate. And I mean, granted, he's supposed to be. But as far as once he finds out who his father is, what I don't really understand was why he thought he had to become his father, which let's be real. Eventually, that's where all of this is going. Um, but at the time, they didn't know this movie was going to be a smash. They didn't know that they were going to do two more of them. So that's kind of what bothered me is that I was like, why Why does he think he is a pirate just because his father was one? Sure. And I mean, you know, like you said, it was supposed to be difficult to come to grips with. Um, what I like, too, I mean, I think it was great casting. I think Orlando Bloom was great in this Disney struck gold with him because at the time you knew him from Lord of the Rings, but he hadn't exploded yet. But I think he was a big box office draw for this movie. Yeah, I think so. Um, Jeffrey Rush as Barbosa is the best villain. I, I don't even want to call him a villain. I'll just call him an antagonist because at the end of the day, Johnny Depp technically is a villain too. So, so let's just call him the antagonist. He's the best one this series has ever had. Um, he's the best you're probably ever going to find in this franchise. And I think that has a lot to do with how Jeffrey Rush played him, how he fleshed him out, the attitude he gave him, the smarminess he gave him. He's as perfect as Johnny Depp. But because Jack Sparrow has become this iconic character that has transcended pop culture i feel like barbosa who is as good a character as jack is often falling by the wayside i totally agree with you especially because you know he gives him like this sense of being this older wiser pirate and i think that also comes from jeffrey rush's pedigree because you know He's he's a serious actor and he he was doing a lot of lesser known indie films. Um so to get a big name like that for a movie, th I think that definitely gave this credibility as far as we're doing a movie based on an, a theme park ride. Yeah, and he also has one of the few Rs that you actually get in the franchise. Yeah, he really nailed that. And, but, and he does it in a way that it doesn't come off as being silly. Which is very, very hard to do. Because, like, he does it, like, you feel it in his gut. Like, he yeah. really believes it. And I love the, um, the Apple thread mm -hmm. that carries through the whole performance and the whole character arc. I think that's brilliant. We like Elizabeth Swan. We talked about her earlier as a character, but what's most impressive is that Kira Knightley was only 17 years old that when she made this movie. That blows my mind. I was 17 years old watching this movie. 17 years old while making this movie, and she was that good. I mean, this wasn't her first time with Disney. Well, at the time, she a lot of people don't know this. She was in Star Wars. She played Episode one. Yeah, Queen Amidala's handmaid, her, her double, her, her stand-in. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so, you know, she had gotten these big blockbuster films before, but, you know, to be against these these big actors, she certainly held her own. And she had this way, I, I like of playing it too, I mean, where other than the first time she sees the pirates in their moonlight form, she's never really afraid. No matter yeah. if there's a gun to her head or if there's sword fighting or whatever's going on, she's always she's always just kind of playing it cool because she is smart and almost like Jack, she's kind of one step ahead. Yeah, and she herself had said um, that she thought, in pre-production at least, that this was going to be a fairly easy movie for her to make. Mm-hmm. That she could just wear, as she said, wear the pretty dresses and show up at the party. And this ended up being a lot more physically demanding on her than she had anticipated. But you never get the feeling that she was ever in over her head. No. Let's talk about Norrington, who, over the course of this franchise, your opinion of him will change so much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I walk away from this movie upon later viewings, liking him much more than I did in the beginning. Because in the beginning, um, before before the original trilogy had been fleshed out, I remember thinking that he was insufferable. Like, obviously, he's doing his job, but he drove me absolutely crazy. I couldn't stand Norrington. Well, I think that's it is you're so rooting for Jack early on and he's trying to stop him and you want Jack to get away. So of course you're going to villainize him in your mind, but I think this is like Jeffrey Rush, another one of these characters who gets overshadowed just because Johnny Depp is, he was too good. Yeah. Um, But I love everything he brings to the table. I love how serious he is. He's very stoic in a way. Um, but he is a perfect foil. That's the other thing. Mm. Like as as determined as he is, he's a perfect foil for Jack Sparrow. Yeah, and I love uh, one of his early lines where uh, someone says, "Mark my words," and he's like, "Oh, consider them marked." Yeah. Um, his last line is great too when he kind of gives Will his blessing. I'm gonna let you bat lead off on Gibbs here. Well, we did kind of talk about him a little bit but I I just love like this idea of like the fallen angel how you know he starts off in the navy and then ends up drunk on Tortuga but um you know he does have a decent amount of screen time but I feel like he's such a a scene stealer in every scene that he's in because I just love the character so much I mean yes he's comic relief um and he, you know, he does play an important part of the story, but I just think the fall from grace is such an interesting idea. Yeah, I love that he became the thing he feared the most. Um, he he is funny where he needs to be funny, but I love the relationship he has with Jack. And that they don't really waste a lot of time fleshing that out any further. We didn't need a ton of backstory there. Right. And he says that Jack doesn't really trust a lot of people after the mutiny. Right. But you can tell that Gibbs is like his go to guy because, you know, he is the all knowing pirate. Um, and I love what the actor. Um, it's uh, in the Kevin McNally. Kevin McNally did. Um, he played him. You know, he was inspired by 
Disney's Treasure Island movie, uh, but it gave him a little bit of Quint from Jaws. So I think I think that's a really cool touch. Let's talk about the production of the film and sort of the special effects that they used here mixed with the practical effects. Yeah, this was a really seamless blend of practical and CGI. I mean, obviously your CGI is in the zombie pirates, but what they did motion capture was still pretty early on at this point because even, you know, when Johnny Depp's talks about it, he's in the unitard and he's just like I have ping pong balls on me. And now I think it's a little bit more commonly known that those are all of your, you know, your joints and that's how they'll superimpose the image onto the actor's performance. Um but here what they did, not only with Johnny Depp, but for all of the pirates, once the moonlight touches them, um, they had all of the skeletal forms of the actors' faces and they took pictures of different materials that they wanted to use to make that raggedy hanging skin. Like yeah. one of them was jerky, another was like a piece of tattered cloth and they would just kind of copy and paste that onto the skull to give it that look of like melting off. Right. Like rotting flesh. Exactly. That zombie look. And I love the outfits. I love the costumes here because I mean, the real regal stuff is so incredibly detailed. It's phenomenal. But then you learn that, they had, I think they said, like, over 900 different costumes or something ridiculous. And what they did, especially for the pirates, to make them look tattered, is they took these brand new outfits that had just been made for the movie, they threw them in a cement truck with bricks and just turned it on and let them get destroyed. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think... You know, it's things like that that made this movie so successful because it's all of the craftsmen that dedicated their talent to it. Because the real challenge of this movie was not just that it was a period piece, it was the amount of extras that they had. Mm -hmm. So this stuff was not readily available to rent from a prop house to order you know, in large quantity, they had to fabricate so much of it. And to do that many pieces is just such a huge undertaking. And I I give them a lot of credit because they basically manufactured everything for real. And it was a pain for them to get it to the island of St. Vincent where they shot the movie because they picked St. Vincent because of all of those Caribbean islands, it's the one that's still sort of the most... Um, lush because it doesn't have a lot of hotels lining the shores like you have in St. Martin, St. Thomas, St. Bart's. You're not going to get the cruise ships going in necessarily. But the issue with that is now you don't have a major airport either. Right. So they're bringing all of this over by boat. They're getting it to the Caribbean and then they're trans they're flying a lot of things down or they're putting them on boats and they're moving everything by boat to this other island. It made everything a nightmare. But it also created a lot of jobs yes, for the it locals. Did. It did. Which is which is amazing. And I think that's why the movie 
for so many reasons, still holds up without giving my final synopsis. We're going to do that in just a moment. No, here. you but can. I think, Go for it. Well, I think that's part of why the movie totally holds up, because it looks authentic. It doesn't look like a movie that relied so much on CGI. They built these sets. They used practical effects. They had a, uh, a sword maker or a swordsmith actually making the swords for the movies incredibly detailed they wanted it to look real i think nowadays they rely so much on cgi that if you made this for if you made this movie new today this franchise was brand new and they started shooting today would it look as good as this one does no way I agree with you. I mean, I think it's definitely a testament to the filmmakers and and not just everybody above the line. I mean, you know, I mentioned him before, Gore Verbinski. Before he did this, he did The Ring. Um, You know, he hadn't, I don't think he had done the big blockbuster yet. And I think he handled the material so well. I think he was able to bring this team together of enormous talent. And again, not just the actors, but just everybody who contributed was the best at what they did. And as a result, they got a great movie out of it. And to touch on what you said, you know, that's the difference between this and something like Cats. This is going to sound crazy, but just hear this comparison out, is that, you know, this movie was so controversial when it was first announced and they were like, you're doing a movie based on a theme park attraction. And, you know, Hollywood kind of wrote this off. And when you're pitching it like that, well, it's based on a ride and it's about pirates and then we're going to cast Johnny Depp in it. It sounds crazy. So does doing a movie of the musical Cats, but we're going to do real people and we're going to CGI the fur. Both ideas are crazy. And one of them was a massive flop. And one of them was a massive hit. And, that's the fine line that you walk with the cast and crew. What will make a movie successful or what will make it a giant failure? Yeah. I go so far as to say that, um, and this will spoil my review of every single Pirates of the Caribbean film after this, that this is clearly the best film in the series. Absolutely. To me... Not only is it the best film, but I think it's a perfect film. I, I'm giving it the rare monoreal radio perfect film stamp, which we've only really given to Mary Poppins, Aladdin, and the Lion, Lion King, King, and Toy Story. Right. I think we've given it to Toy Story. If not, I, we should have. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with you. I would, I would make this, I would consider this a perfect film. And um, I mean, I said it's, it's no secret. This is my favorite Disney live action and I was absolutely obsessed with this movie when it came out I mean I was a pirate for Halloween I had the Johnny Depp action figures I had the shirts I mean you name it I bought it if it was at Hot Topic I had it um and since then you know part of it is getting a little older but the other part of it too is that you know I started falling out of these out of love with these movies because of some of the sequels and what I'm hoping over the next couple of weeks is that we're going to rekindle the love that I had from I mean really I was upset like for my 30th birthday Sean got me 
a prop from Pirates. It was used in Pirates 2 and 3. Um, I'm going to try and find, as we're watching over the next couple of weeks, where it is in frame yeah. um, and put it next to what I have. But I, when you gave me that, I mean, I love this movie so much, I was rendered speechless. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and, and I mean, sitting here looking at it because we have it here in the studio, even something that had maybe a second of screen time and it's in the background, to sit here and look at it, and we'll post pictures on social media, yeah, how we'll totally get incredibly into it. detailed that, that it is, mm-hmm. is beyond impressive. I would go so far... And this is gonna. This is this is a hot take. This is gonna set some people off, and I don't really care. I would go so far as to say, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, is the best film that the Walt Disney Company has released in the last twenty years. And let me tell you why. Other than all of the reasons that we've waxed poetic about for nearly an hour and a half, I love The Force Awakens. That was an IP with a lot of source material. I love Avengers Endgame. You're talking about a property with almost an endless amount of source material. Mm-hmm. This is a film that... that launched a global phenomenon, launched a multi-billion dollar franchise based off of an attraction that was a concept that the Disney company came up with all by themselves. That was almost a wax museum. Almost was a wax museum. This wasn't an animated film based on a fairy tale. This wasn't a remake of something somebody else had done. This is something that is completely original and unique to them. And I find I can't find anything else that based on absolutely nothing was as good as this was. No, that's a really great point, too, that this was all them. And when you strip everything else away, they just made a really awesome movie, hands down, that appealed to families it appealed to little boys little girls i mean it it covered every demographic you could find something to love about this movie and you know i kind of miss that pirates phenomenon that this all started and i think you know part of that has to do with the sequels um which as we said we're going to talk about and you know what kind of has me a little nervous now is is it a reboot is it a sequel? What are they doing? Because they do do, I mean, there's this trilogy, which is what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. And then we're probably going to save the second trilogy that has Jack, but not Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley, even though they got them back later on. I kind of thought they were going for a second trilogy with that one. I don't think they know what it's going to be. I, I think it problem. was supposed to. And then... Now they're saying reboot, and if I had to guess where they were going with that, it was because they've been pushing this idea of Red so hard. I mean, I know that they are adjusting the ride because people found it offensive, and we've gone on and on about how ridiculous we find that. But I feel like because of all the merch that followed, I really thought they were going to do a more female-empowered pirate movie. Now they're saying it's no longer a reboot, it's a sequel. 
Johnny Depp is back. If I had to guess because of that route, I think that's due to the coronavirus. And they they want a lock that, that he's going to bring people to the theaters. Yeah, I don't know. It, it It's like, for, it's not even day to day. It's like hour by hour. You can, I mean, I literally read three different articles today. Today. That said, it's a reboot. It's a remake. Johnny Depp is in. Johnny Depp is out. They don't know what's going on. And that within itself is concerning. Because I will say now, and when we eventually review the film, I'll make mention of it. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. I was so excited to go into that movie. You had uh, Javier Bardem and Johnny Depp was there. Only once in my life have I ever, and I'm, I'm not afraid to admit this, only once in my life have I ever fallen asleep in a movie theater. And it was when we saw Dead Men Tell No Tales. I fell asleep for 15 minutes, woke up, and hadn't missed anything. That's how I knew the movie was bad. So based on that, and based on the fact that they are so confused about what they're going to do next, you almost would just wish that it would go away. I hate to say that because I know you miss the phenomenon and you're hoping that they can maybe get something going again. I'm on the side of the fence where I just want this to go away. But I miss this phenomenon over an excellent movie. That's what I'm saying. I I want to live in this world. And if they're going to do another one, I hope they go back to their roots and they realize what they had and how far it got away from what was so good about the beginning yeah well you guys can let us know your opinions of this movie as well as the franchise in totality on twitter instagram facebook at monoreal radio you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com news this week sounds like the right stuff is coming to disney plus and no not the feature film it's going to be a television series. Yeah, it was originally made for Nat Geo, but now they're going to release it on D- Disney+. Plus. Well, I guess they figured for as long as people are quarantined, um, you know, Disney+. Plus. I mean, streaming services across the map have gotten so many more subscribers. I think this is going to start becoming the new normal for us. Not being quarantined, but, oh God. but <laughs> um, I think you're going to start to see a lot more leave traditional television to go to streaming services i mean even cbs plus the star uh star trek picard series went straight to streaming the twilight zone reboot went straight to streaming i think you're going to start seeing a lot of this happen and especially with some of the live action remakes um that disney's doing you saw them do it with lady and the tramp i think it's going to open the door for this to happen more frequently well i mean disney has not geo you know it's all part of the same banner but yeah i mean i guess i guess it's maybe maybe the branding and the marketing are going to be stronger associating it with disney plus than just trying to send people to their cable provider if they have one to watch it on Nat Geo. Well, that's the other thing. So many people are cutting the cord. Right. I mean, we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that also is becoming the new normal. Right. Um, Robert Rodriguez and Peyton Reed, who directed Ant-Man, have been confirmed as two directors coming up for The Mandalorian. Very happy with that choice. I know For you Robert are. Rodriguez. I mean, I'm I have intrigued. nothing against Peyton Reed, but I mean, I love Robert Rodriguez. I I'm think intrigued. he's going to do an awesome job. Yeah. A lot of Star Wars news this week. Um, the biggest news that uh, Taika Waititi has been named the director of the next Star Wars film. I mean, we are years away from this happening between what's going on right now at the studio, or really what's going on Hollywood with COVID-19. Um, but they had also said that they were going to take a break for a couple of years to develop another trilogy. So I would be surprised if we see this film in less than three years. I think you're three to five years away from the next big Star Wars film. I don't know, though. I mean, I know Taika is a fan of the franchise. I mean, he he did a couple of voices in Mandalorian and, you know, he's had cameos and whatnot. But, um, you know, and Disney obviously likes him because right. of Thor. So the pairing was not a surprise at all. And I think he's going to handle the material really well. But you have to wonder, was this because of COVID-19? Are they trying to... And I mean, look, nobody knows what's going to happen yet. We don't know when things are going to quote-unquote go back to normal. And we don't know what that is going to do for movie theaters. But assuming the best, once everything is back up and running, and if theater chains can survive this you're going to want these big blockbusters to draw the crowds. You're going to need them. So it begs the question, are they doing this now and are they going to gun it out fast so that they can, you know, get get the return on it? Right. Again, you guys can let us know what you think about the news this week, mostly Star Wars related. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email monorealradio at gmail.com. And you should go and check out the newly launched, newly rebranded monorealradio.com. We just got that up this week. No more of the longer <laughs> address, the monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home. No, we paid for it. Yeah, we paid for it. Okay. <laughs> and now it is just monorealradio.com. You got, hey, listen. And it, you can listen right there. Yeah. We, Two years for free, we said, okay, let's pay for it now. But the the site, uh, everything is there. Um, you have access to, because uh, there are some people that don't have a smart device or some people that don't want to subscribe on a podcast platform of choice. Although um, we would love if you subscribed and gave us a review. Yes. Um, if you uh, just prefer to sit there and stream uh, audio through your computer without having to Sign up for one of those platforms. You can do that at monorealradio.com. Every episode of the show is up on monorealradio.com and for free, always for free. I want to put that out there because I know Patreon has become such a big thing. And some people have asked me, people that don't listen to the show have said, how much money do you make? And I go, I haven't bought the domain name yet. (laughs) (laughs) We don't make any money doing this. So it's always there, and it's always free. There's no subscription. There's no membership. Just go and enjoy the website. I'm not even going to lie. I bought it with my stimulus check. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) The U.S. government paid 
for Monorail Radio. Radio. <laughs> oh, if boy. that's not America, I don't know what is. We are living the American dream. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week. Like Jackie said before, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Facebook and on your favorite uh, podcasting platform, whichever one you choose to use. We will be back next week to continue discussing the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.